This is the Ad Nontech Podcast, conversations about education, technology, and culture, with Dr. Doug Reed and Dr. Matt Stranick. Thank you for joining us. My name is Dr. Doug Reed, and I am located on Abigue, the traditional and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. My name is Dr. Matthew Stranick, and I am located in Manaquisk in St. John, New Brunswick, which is situated on the traditional and unceded territory of the Wulastukyuk Maliseet people. Thompson Rivers University campuses are on the traditional lands of the Tekemluk de Shikwetmik, Kamloops campus, and the Teklek the Williams Lake campus within Shikwetmik Ulu, the traditional and unceded territory of the Shikwetmik people. Matt and Doug are both grateful to be guests in these traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands where teaching and learning have taken place since time immemorial. Hi everyone, it's Dr. Matt Stranick, and uh, I'm joined here by my excellent uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Doug Reed. How are you doing, Dr. Doug Reed? I'm good, Matt. How are you? Yeah, real well. And uh, I would just like to say uh, thanks to uh, Dr. Pamela Gurney for inviting me to participate in your class this week. Um, as I understand, uh, as uh, Dr. Uh, Pam has informed me, this is a 5,000 level, so graduate level education class at Thompson Rivers University. And uh, Doug and I both have uh, spent some time at TRU, and it's on the basis of, uh, I guess, the uh, professional uh, relationship, I suppose. Uh, I've come in and done a few of these ed tech kind of lectures while I was at TRU during my uh, the four years uh, with Dr. Gurney. And uh, I, I don't know, Doug, that you uh, encountered Pam during your time at TRU whatsoever? No, I was only at TRU for three months before COVID shut everything down and we sent everybody ah. home. So, so no, I didn't gotcha. get the opportunity. Yeah, well, again, um, that's, that's great because uh, you're in for a treat. Pam is awesome. And uh, I, I, one of the things I would like to just kind of highlight uh, going forward here is that uh, when Pam first invited me to sort of uh, do this lecture, as well as another lecture for a different class that will be happening in a couple of months, um, it really sort of gave me pause to consider, um, given the fact that I worked at TRU in a tenure track role, uh, it didn't quite work out. And um, I'm not really here to speak about that because to me, that's kind of where the story begins. So I really started kind of thinking, what was it like when that pivotal moment happened in my career where um, something that I've been planning on, like for instance, working at Thompson Rivers for um, perhaps the, the length of my career, um, I, I sort of, I, I set a lot by those plans. And when it turned out that uh, that wasn't gonna happen, I kind of had to uh, reimagine things a little bit, both as myself, uh, as a professional, and what I was even doing, uh, particularly in the uh, ed tech realm, the educational technology sphere, which is where uh, Doug and I both have our uh, doctoral qualifications. Um, and I thought uh, rather than just sort of, so, so Pam, when she sort of came to me, she said, um, how about kind of a, a one hour lecture, asynchronous, which, you know, is, is awesome, I think. Um, and basically she left the door wide open. She was like, you can really speak to any topic that you want. So when I think about, I guess, meaningful impact of learning technology, 
vis-a-vis -vis your own career, it really got me thinking about this concept that Doug and I have been kind of uh, hashing out a little bit. It uh, first cropped up on our podcast, the Ed Nontech podcast, back uh, this past fall. We sort of uh, came up with this kind of uh, half facetious, sort of half ironic um, acronym because the ed tech field, if I can sort of generalize, is rife with acronyms. So we thought, well, let's, uh, if we're going to have an acronym, why not uh, kind of have a, a cool one? So personal education infrastructure, that is to say PEI. Hopefully uh, you see uh, both the humor and uh, potentially the value there. And uh, really, I just thought uh, it may be of some interest to you career educators, uh, as well as others who may be watching this, how um, in the 21st century, the contemporary, uh, you know, the second decade of the 20th century, um, how, or third decade, actually, we're in the 2020s. So what that, what that looks like, because everybody among you is going to have a different kind of career and a different kind of path through education. So how can this notion of personal education infrastructure help or support or perhaps even just give you some ideas? Um, and that's kind of what I have in mind. Doug, does that make any amount of sense? Do you, do you feel what I'm uh, laying down here, pal? I do. Just as an additional note to when we came up with PEI, I live in PEI now, so that's that's part of why I enjoyed that that's that TLA three-letter abbreviation so much. Awesome. And uh, I would, that's fantastic. I appreciate that. And uh, despite this uh, background behind me, uh, you may be surprised to learn that I'm actually in St. John, New Brunswick, uh, where I now work as a uh, learning development specialist with the Commissioner Corps of Canada. Um, and this is sort of where I, I ended up landing after spending as much time as I could in BC, um, it just became apparent that uh, this was going to be the best uh, career option for me. So I think um, there's not, there's a, there's a lot of opportunities. Um, you can try enhancing your teaching practice, um, but maybe having some benefit from um, finding out when things don't go according exactly to plan. So when I was thinking about what this means for me, um, you, you can see in the notes, uh, what I've kind of done is broken things down in terms of, uh, uh, I guess, some tools in the kit, uh, both conceptual tools and, I guess, technological tools. And uh, in terms of what the notes provide, uh, at least for my part of the notes, um, I, I spend a bit of time speaking to that. So I'm not going to get too hung up on if I don't get every little aspect of it into this recording. Um, and one of the reasons I reached out to Doug is, apart from the fact that we have this uh, podcast and this kind of uh, long running, it's, it's been uh, getting on, it's, 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 it's a year and a half, it's getting close to two years anyway, um, where we've been working on this. So we just, we, we know each other real well. Um, and one thing that I've really come to value from this whole experience is the benefit of having a, a sympathetic partner or a sympathetic collaborator who can kind of look in and uh, make suggestions, things that I wouldn't have thought of, but then also having a, a critical second perspective, which I think is really important in your uh, professional and academic life. Um, Doug, what, what do you what do you feel about this? I mean, years ago, and you were very uh, yeah. gracious about agreeing, but I mean. Does, does, does this kind of resonate for you? Is there anything you'd like to add here for the students, bud? Yeah, one of the things in the literature that as I was reading through getting ready for the for my side of the notes of things is so rarely does anybody investigate like the social network. Like if we hadn't worked together, we wouldn't be doing the podcast. If we hadn't done the podcast, we wouldn't be doing this lecture right now. So part of our personal education infrastructure is our friendship and relationship. And that is so vitally important and it doesn't get mentioned enough. Like people wave at it in the literature and they're like, oh yeah, there's a, yeah, make sure you have good social networks. And it's like, what does that even mean? 
and well, they don't exactly so. that area. Totally so. so and um, I guess the rest of it all makes sense. Totally. Um, and one of the things that we uh, are going to sort of struggle with, and you may have even have no mentioned it a bit here, is that no technological medium is perfect. So, for instance, um, you may have noticed that uh, there's maybe a bit of a delay in the recording where uh, I might accidentally be stepping onto Doug or he might be accidentally stepping onto me because of buffering or slow network connections at one end. Uh, so anything that happens through a technology format, you're, you're making concessions. You're going to be losing some things, but you're going to be getting some things. And ultimately, hopefully, um, what we can provide you here are just some anecdotes, some stories, some tools, some approaches that we have found helpful, um, as well as some references uh, and academic sources in the hopes that this may, you know, uh, land for you, uh, resonate for you a bit. And so in terms of uh, presenting this lecture, if you will, this uh, video in sort of a podcast format, um, it ensures that you're not just going to be hearing from me, uh, that you're going to get the benefit of a couple of us, but then also it's sort of presenting uh, the story of personal, personal education infrastructure through our sort of um, the, the PEI that we have put together, our own PEI, if you will. Um, so, yeah, um, I know, Doug, that you've put together uh, some really quite good notes here, and I really actually like <laughs> Doug shared with me. So one of our processes is um, that we uh, share out in advance of these recordings it, it typically starts with Doug kind of picking a topic. So I'm switching that around a little bit just because uh, the invite came from uh, Pam over to me. But um, when I flipped it over to Doug and he agreed to do this, uh, immediately I think he uh, started, well, maybe not immediately, but right away he began putting together a, a Google Doc because for our podcast, all of the episodes start with just some references. So I think that probably leads to um, my first point before we even get into the first reference that Doug has shared with us. And one aspect of that is simply um, that you really um, want to have a good uh, sense of uh, where you're going. And I was looking at a screen there, bud. Uh, I was looking at another tab and my, my thought kind of got away from me. But uh, it's, I guess... Uh, yeah, your, your first reference here, Bud, really lands. Um, and I'd be interested to hear you uh, speak to why you included that. Okay, so for the students, if you go to the notes, you'll see an article, uh, Kelly Phepps and Swift, 2004. I know that feels like a million years ago, but it isn't. <laughs> uh, they wrote about developing a holistic approach for e-learning accessibility, and they have a great model of it. And at the center of everything is learner needs. And as educators, we have to take a look at that. And this was one of the few early models that mentioned infrastructure, what infrastructure was in place. Right now, every once in a while, we have a bit of a struggle with the internet connection and the software that goes with it and the time lag and all that. But when you're a student trying to learn, that could just be the thing that stops you. That can be the thing that destroys any quality. It can be just that overwhelming thing that gets you quit. So in their model, uh, Phipps or Kelly et al., they have accessibility, usability, learner outcomes, local factors, infrastructure. And local factors often gets ignored when people do the big picture stuff. Because a lot of times people that are making the decisions, they're the big idea people. They're the people at central office or... They're the people in the president's office or the executive suites making these decisions. But as educators, it's us. We're the ones that have to make the decisions and make sure what local factors matter. And a lot of the student agency stuff that we're going to get to later is going to be in those local factors. But everything needs to be based on learner needs. What are your learners needing to learn? And I'm, I'm going to leave it at that and let Matt comment. Yeah, fantastic. Um, thank you. And uh, I guess I would just say that uh, 
I agree wholeheartedly with uh, the points that Doug has uh, drawn out here, uh, not the least of which particularly is the local factor. So um, I think one of the things that is uh, maybe lacking in contemporary e-learning is, you know, you get into these learning management systems or you get into these uh, learning environments, these virtual settings, and they sort of tend to eschew through their design and through their interface and through their formats any real um, reference to the local context. So this is something where uh, I've got the uh, I've got the nice Kamloops in winter background uh, behind me. This is just a small thing that I have done to just kind of uh, break down in a visual kind of manner what uh, you know to to kind of draw that local connection. Um, and I guess I would just add before uh, we we go too much further without uh, mentioning it is um, the notion of meaningful land acknowledgements. And so you would have heard prior to the beginning of this recording, Doug and I have actually, and this this was Doug's idea, we, we spent the first few episodes of the podcast um, kind of reciting or trying to do um, not an ad lib, but a very sort of in the moment uh, kind of acknowledgement for each of the territories that we are, that we're, that we're located in. And um, I can't speak for Doug, but I'll just say for me that um, my time at TRU, one of the reasons that it was so formative was because it really drew open um, how important indigenization is to me um, and just generally speaking. So I think um, in terms of when you're preparing to be further into your careers, one of the things you can do is wherever you happen to be, I won't presume that you're all going to be remaining in Kamloops. Um, one of the things I would say is that, uh, you know, you can create your own land acknowledgement for wherever you happen to be and you can record it and you can practice saying it and you can kind of go over it again and again until it feels natural to say it. Um, and as well, until you have a solid recording so that when you're creating any kind of digital or learning artifact, you have the ability to place that at the beginning of it or into it or to reference it. So it's a very easy thing you can do and you don't have to use it every time, but it's something where um, you can really, I think, cover a lot of good ground uh, just by, you know, making that, making that effort, finding out what's appropriate for your particular area and then just kind of keeping that with you as a piece of uh, content that you can, choose to use um, as as necessary. So I guess that's kind of what Flip puts, uh, that reference kind of put that in mind for me, bud. And along those lines, I have a story from when I was a K-12 teacher. Many years ago, I got my very first classroom. It was a grade five class in a small town in Alberta. And for the, I was told a lot of my students lived on a reserve nearby. And one of my my colleagues said, you have to identify where north, south, east, and west is in your classroom. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And they said, this matters to some of your learners. You're, you're from Nova Scotia. You may not understand that, but here, this will help. So, of course, I, I did it. And nobody ever thanked me for it until I got into the very first parent teacher meetings and a couple of the parents said, thank you so much for doing that. This really matters in our culture. And it's like, okay, glad to help. I didn't know, but I'm glad somebody let me know because otherwise I would have stumbled along and not made that assumption because as your first year as a teacher, holy smokes, everything is overwhelming. So I'll end that story there. That's awesome, Doug. Thank you. Um, and I guess this is really um, one of the sort of concepts that has emerged over the show, over the course of our, our collaboration through the podcast. Uh, and I mean, this is something that came up during while I was studying my doctorate, but I, I find it really increasingly relevant as the time goes by, is that all learning is contextually bound. And 
that sort of might just be saying like the sky is blue, your nose is on your face. Um, but it's one of those pieces that um, if you drop it or you forget about it or it goes into the background, then you um, are losing maybe some opportunities to engage with your students in, in meaningful ways, to engage with your learners in meaningful ways. So setting and context are, uh, are, are everything. And um, I think one of the things that we try and do is just find uh, find ways to uh, to draw that out and explore that, uh, hopefully within um, our our uh, recordings and other kind of activities. And we, uh, I guess, would encourage you to uh, find something that makes sense for you in that regard. But uh, just uh, that's some some of the kind of, that came to mind for me, but. And that leads us to the next article I have, the the Seal and Cooper 2010 article about e-learning and accessibility and the exploration awesome. of potential role for generic pedagogical tools. It, it slides okay. right into that because when we're looking at how we're designing our learning for our students, there's so much money has been poured into the technological tools, but that was supposed to help students or supposedly helping teachers but the design wasn't there as well. When I was doing my master's at U of C back in 99, we hated, and we announced that we hated, that all the students in my cohort said, we hate that whole, read that article, comment on it, and then reply to two of your students in the discussion forums. We hated how that tool got used. And our profs agreed. They're like, yeah, it's not good. Discussion forums are still new. We're emerging. We're still figuring out how to do it. The most important person in my life is studying. She's doing her PhD now. And she's got the exact same design 25 years later. She's, she's, she's taking a doctoral level course, and it's the same thing. Read that article, do that post, and reply to two other posts by whatever, Sunday night or Tuesday morning or whatever it is. The exact same models being applied. And that's a lack of knowledge on how to help people. Like, are people learning or are they jumping through hoops? Because we're paying a lot of money for her to jump through a hoop rather than learn. <laughs> I'm not trying to be rude. I don't know what the model is in this class. So if, if you have to do a lot of that in discussion forums, uh, Maybe just well, I, I, I think Doug, that's first of all, thank you for that, and thank you for uh, bringing in um, uh, Aaron's uh, experience uh, in terms of what she's going through. And uh, I think, in terms of these kind of embedded or default kind of practices that we've come to associate with e learning, um, I think for me this kind of speaks to one of the sort of broader points that I was hoping to make during this uh, recording is uh, that conceptual frameworks are something that you can carry with you. You can, uh, and I, and I provided some examples and uh, Doug has provided some examples. Um, and so conceptual frameworks and theories of learning. Um, and I, in, in the recordings, I, I kind of just, or the uh, notes rather, I, I kind of distinguish between theories as being more general and widely tested and widely used. Um, whereas, uh, these, uh, frameworks are a little bit more narrow specifically. They, they tend to be more, um, specific to a certain kind of purpose. Um, so what I'm thinking there is say the difference between something like uh, constructivist learning theory, wherein uh, participants supposedly construct knowledge in a social learning endeavor, wherein uh, the instructor or teacher figure has a role to play, um, as opposed to, say, a behaviorist paradigm, wherein uh, it's really just transmission of information, what the, what the emphasis is. So it's not even like that you need to know particular pieces of jargon, but you really, I think in terms of your longer career, want to be able to say when somebody asks you, why are you doing something? You want to be able to give them a reasonable answer. And when you have these um, theories, these learning theories and frameworks, they give you, they, they really go a long way to help provide the why question in terms of your pedagogical approach 
um, but then also it gives you a wider palette of color to use. It gives you more tools because within each conceptual framework, within each learning theory are some attendance strategies um, based on the uh, suppositions of the theory or based on the premises of the conceptual frameworks. So this uh, video is, 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 isn't really meant to give you A to Z of all of these frameworks or theories because we don't have time for it and it's out of scope. But I guess simply to highlight uh, that whatever discipline you're in, whatever area you're working in, it's these are going to be different for everybody. You can't simply say, well, TPAC, you know, in all circumstances or the uh, ADI instructional design framework in all circumstances. Um, a lot of these you might not even become aware of until you're actually in your own work setting and they may originate from within uh, your organization and that may end up guiding what you do. But I guess the point of it is finding some of these frameworks and conceptual models and theories that you are comfortable with and sort of express your values um, and just carrying the diagrams around, having those pieces of ephemera, knowing what the key readings are, uh, just to be able to justify, give some real um, support for what you're trying to achieve. And I, I didn't mean to go on a bit of a, a tirade there, Doug, uh, but I just really, uh, it struck me as important, so. First, thank you for adding constructionism. Uh, for people that haven't listened to our podcast, Matt has had to listen to me talk about how I'm a social constructionist for about a year and a half now. So I appreciate that she, he added that to the list. As an educator, my default mode is how do I help my students? That's my default mode. And if I don't know what my biases are and what my beliefs are, then how do I help my students in the best possible way? So when you take a look at that, most of Western and by Western, I mean like like the UK and Ireland and and the States and Australia, New Zealand, Canada and all that. That's what I mean by Western, the Westernized world. Social constructionism is there. That that seems to be like a default basis I found across countries as I've, I've done my research and I've traveled. So if that's what we're doing, because the instant you meet a behaviorist, you're going to be like, holy moly, what is that person doing? Right, that that Skinner stuff was out in the 1950s. What is going on there? So you got to figure out where you're at. And then for me, my default is always, how do I help the students? It has to be, where's the students at? And one thing I want to talk about, I want to jump to Robertson Hernandez, the 2019 article that we've got in the notes. And it's talking about the, the five A's of technology access. Because as we're getting into the design and helping students, students learn, they have a nice little diagram and it has the five A's. It has agency, abilities, awareness, affordability, and availability. When you're designing learning for students, you need to take a look at all those things. And this is just about technology access, but it's not just about technology access. You could take that same model and do it in a face-to-face -face class where all the technology is provided by the school itself. It's and it comes down to agency, who has the self-efficacy to make use of this technology. Let's say they have all the abilities. Let's say they have the awareness. If you've ever tried to teach an elderly relative how to double click on a phone at a distance while you're on the phone with them, right? That's, you're a better person than me because that, that has been painful in my life. And they're, these, these elderly relatives might have amazing skills and have had very successful lives, but just doing some of those tasks, it's not in the norm for them. Some of it's affordability, right? I know a couple of students that I had where I set up all these learning for them. And then it was like, sorry, Dr. Reed, I can't get to it because we only have one computer in the house and I've got three siblings and my parents need it for work too. And it's just unavailable, unaffordable. It's just too much. 
So we have to take a look at those as another basis of the infrastructure. Um, you might be as energetic as possible. You might have amazing skills, but if the access isn't there for your students, you got to find another way around it. And Matt, I'm wondering couldn't, what your thoughts are. Couldn't agree with you more, Doug, uh, is what my thoughts are. Actually, I was thinking that's really well put what he's putting down there. Um, one of the aspects of learning tech that um, I've come to appreciate is knowing when is enough uh, and really trying to find the minimum baseline, the minimum threshold where everybody who needs access can participate. So um, this is something that came to the forefront, uh, at least you know for me, um, a bit during the pandemic when uh, classes, courses were canceled for an entire semester and, and longer. And um, as Doug has pointed out, there uh, might not always be the most reasonable or equitable access of the uh, technology, hardware, handsets, computers, whatever. Um, so what you really want to do, what I think we've tried to do with the design of the WordPress elements of our uh, podcast and in terms of um, just the way that we sort of carry the show is really what's the minimum that can be done here and uh, to sort of maybe have an innovative learning design that doesn't rely too much on the technology to do the tricks for you. <laughs> it's it's sort of like you can have all these bells and whistles, but um, ultimately 80% uh, of the value, and this is just kind of an anecdotal uh, thing called the, the Pareto principle, the Pareto principle, you can look it up, um, where 80% of a product's value comes from just 20% of its feature set. So if you think, okay, in terms of a learning package, in terms of Moodle, or in terms of uh, any of these other systems, what are the tw what, what's the twenty percent that mo that eighty percent of your learners are going to get the most value from, and really building that, um, and instead of necessarily trying to go further into these sets of features or functionality, things that may require more bandwidth, things that may not render well on a mobile phone, things that uh, require heavy uses of streaming any of that stuff, you're, 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 you're trading accessibility and usability for a enhanced feature set. And to me, that's just not, um, in, my, in my experience, in our experience, I think, Doug, it's, it's not, uh, th there are better ways. That's all. So that's kind of what you uh, were, that's, 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 that's what, what you were saying kind of put me in mind of, Pal. Yeah, another example for me is, different learning management systems. They all come from the institutions these days. So you're using Moodle or Blackboard or Desire to Learn or whatever, right? There, there's a whole bunch of them out there. And have you ever tried to interact with your LMS on your phone? The Blackboard one is horrific. It is. It breaks so many rules of graphic design and instructional design because it has to have whatever, the logo's gotta be there at all times. And then if you're trying to read something, if you're trying to read script through that, forget it. Yes, technically you have access, but there's a difference between technically having access and having useful access. It is painful, especially if you don't have the brand new phone, if your phone's a couple of years older and all the rest. It, it's There's such a huge difference for what are you doing to the students? How can we make their lives as easy as possible? Because then they learn better and it's easier for you to do it too. Awesome. Um, yeah, and I think uh, this is again, um, and, and just to sort of speak to the notions of, uh, again, we, we've talked about uh, sort of the importance of having uh, frameworks and learning theories, uh, and we, we provided some examples. Uh, another of those being Universal Design for Learning, UDL, uh, which sort of is a pretty widely accepted framework, uh, if you will, for ensuring that technology uh, and uh, 
you know, the, the spin-offs of technology can be used equally by the widest number of people. So you're not just sort of making exceptions for somebody who may, for instance, have uh, partially, you know, have, have, a, have, say, color, you know, discrepancy with their vision. You're, you're, you know, you're using color and instructional design principles in such a way that everybody, you know, has the ability to process that info uh, according to, you know, their, their sensory configuration or whatnot. Um, it's making the decisions to sort of make things accessible for everybody and not just sort of making accessibility something that you're kind of doing akin to a sort of remediation. So um, again, it's 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 it just if you even if you haven't heard the term UDL or Universal Design for Learning before, if you have it in your mind that um, frameworks and conceptual models are going to be helpful, then you are kind of empowered to start looking for those on your own. And uh, again, you're going to find what's meaningful and relevant for you. But uh, good design, I think lifts and elevates everybody and, uh, you know, provides sort of a consistency of user experience. So when you're to, to, to sort of shift the talk now a bit more specifically to the technology, technology aspect um, between enterprise systems like Microsoft Office 365, these cloud-based productivity suites like Google, I would call Google a productivity package, uh, the Google learning apps, um, or your learning management software. I guess if you're looking at something that's going to kind of follow you around in your professional life and in your career, you probably want to know a little bit about the admin side of each of these things, and you can get free trial accounts for them. And then just through your own experimentation, you can even go, okay, if I just have, say, this sort of course-like experience that I want to try, what's it look like if I put it into uh, a Microsoft folder? What's it look like if I put it into Google Suite? And just kind of finding out just through almost trial and error a bit yourself, you know, what it's like on the user side for these uh, kind of things before you start running them out with students. Um, that's that's just uh, one kind of practical suggestion I might uh, draw from what we're talking about here. Um, anything else that's coming to you from mind on this one, bud? Yeah, a key component of what you're talking about with experimenting with, with those types of things is can you extract your information easily later? So if you go into the, the Google Docs or Google Slides or whatever, can you get that out easily? We had uh, a person that left where I'm working now. Somebody else came in and she had built everything into, into it's like Microsoft OneNote, whatever that is, the one with all the fancy tabs and it looks pretty and you can use all the colors and all that. He couldn't get the info out in a useful way other than like copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste. He couldn't just extract it. If There might be a way to do it but not when somebody else owns the documents in the first place. So it's those types of things. It's, And I'm not just trying to be negative on technology. About 10, 12 years ago now, when iPads first came out, I was part of a, a project that we went to Indigenous communities in Northern Alberta, and we gave the schools class sets of iPads. And then we taught the teachers and engaged with the students to use them. And normally I am not a fan of the whiz bangy aspect of technology. I am not a fan because I know it wears off, but we went, met with the elders first and we got the elders on board with digital storytelling. That's how we were going to join the community because we know storytelling is such an important part of these communities. And, and the elders loved it. They're like, oh yes, please do this. This is fantastic. They were so on board. They were so helpful. And we had students building digital stories and we had showed them how to do that with when we interacted with them. And then they, the students were able to show the elders what was going on to see the, the spread from, 
from the how the technology could help everybody connect more. And it doesn't even have to be digital technology. Something similar happened uh, up north. There was um, some people came with kayaks, like those, you know, the plastic kayaks, and they wanted to bring them back to the north because kayaks are from the north originally. And they were getting a little pushback and struggle because they were these white people coming in bringing kayaks. So what they did is they put the elders in kayaks. And as soon as the elders were in kayaks and they were having a good experience and because they remember when they were younger and they did it and that changed everything. It was how can we help build the community and build the trust and be part of the positive move forward and giving the students more agency. And that's what it was about. So it doesn't have to be just the, the technology, like the digital electronic stuff. It can be any of the technologies. So that's what I've got for that. Every time, uh, I shouldn't say every time, almost every time, uh, Doug and I do a podcast and uh, we're, we're, we're on deck later this week or tomorrow uh, to do episode 46 of the podcast. So we've been doing it for a while. But um, I, 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 I keep hearing about these uh, experiences from Doug's career where I'm just like, I had no idea that that was part of your practice at one point. So um ipads in uh, northern alberta indigenous communities i am surprised we've uh, come this far into our uh, collaboration and i'm just hearing about this now um thanks for saving it for the lecture pal that's uh really really good stuff that's all very impressive project i gotta say man oh it it was cool yeah i've done some stuff i'm not a good self-promoter i i <laughs> i just I don't talk about myself a whole lot, but anytime I can find an example of what works, that's when I like to share. I never like to pat myself on the back and say how wonderful I am because I got a bad shoulder. I can't reach around back enough to, to pat myself on the back. Well, it's just, it's, but I am, there's, I guess. I was going to jump to the next one, but I'll, I'll let you finish your comment. No, no, please, please. I was just going to, Supplemental comments. Uh, please, please take us to the next okay. uh, source here, dude. In 2007, the Council of Europe had some um, recommendations about public responsibility for higher ed and research. And I don't like the term higher ed. I think it's post-secondary, but I don't think it's necessarily higher. Because I know a lot of tradespeople, and what they do is amazing. <laughs> so to say it's higher ed, I... Anyway, that's my own pet peeve. Everybody can have their own ways to do it. And in 2007, so quite a few years ago, they talked about what post-secondary ed was. And it was to prepare students for a sustainable employment, prepare students for a life as active citizens in democratic societies, to cultivate students' personal development, develop, maintain, through teaching and learning, a broad advanced knowledge base. That's what we're looking for. Without student agency, those aren't happening. And right now we need to use technology to help them get there. And we're like using the technology right now. We're not talking to you face-to-face. -face. I'd love to be taking some questions, but whatever, we'll, who knows. But those are the key components of where Europe's coming from. And that's, that's a pretty large place, especially the student's personal development. I don't know how that can happen without student agency because it's one of those you can lead a horse to water, can't make it drink. So they have to engage with their own learning and do what they're going to do. And it's our job to help them get there. Um, again, we, we keep Over coming you. back to this notion. Doug keeps, has, has mentioned this a few times, this, uh, we're, this, this uh, notion of student agency. And it's it's the difference where you you can bring a, a widget or a uh, uh, like a, a a tablet or just you know if 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 this uh, coffee mug had some kind of special tech capability you can bring it and you can you can, you can introduce it into such a way that uh, is student facing and student. Um, embracing student embracing <laughs> that's poor choice of words um but it's sort of 
it's it's something where if you seek input and and formative sort of buy-in from your learners by just you know sort of bringing something in but without being overly prescriptive about how it's used um there's there's a major difference between kind of going at it in a kind of formative or open approach than just sort of saying well here's a piece of equipment that the university or the school district says we have to use so we better kind of lug along and, and get with it. Um, it's, it's really one of these things where if you personally feel comfortable with what you're bringing to the situation, then you're going to get a lot of, there, there's just going to be opportunities for creative, for creativity and uh, dynamic engagement and uh, ultimately agency, if you will, uh, by by kind of approaching it that way. So instead of here's what this thing is for, this is what we're going to do with it. Um, if you can sort of bring it to the situation as in here are some of the things you can do with this. What can we do with this together? What are you going to find, you know, that's, that's valuable from this and uh, being confident enough to kind of give up some of the control of uh, even the format in the interests of uh, letting students have that uh, all-important buy-in and ownership of how their learning even occurs, right? Um, correct me if I'm uh, misrepresenting anything that you were getting out there, but No, no, not at all. And if you take a look, the farther we go in education, the more agency and ownership students have. Because in my undergrad, I know how little I had. Right, I took the courses, wrote the tests, wrote the assignments. And then on my master's, I at least got to write a thesis. And I was basically given an option of, hey, do you want to study one of these few things? And I didn't know any better, so I chose that one. And then for my PhD, I met with my supervisor. And he's like, what do you want to study? And I kind of babbled for a while. He goes, give me a one pager. And I'm like, what? Give me a one pager. What do you want to study? So he, so he forced me to, to create a one pager. And then because he's the most wonderful, one of the most wonderful people I ever met, I thought I had it done. And then he's like, draw me the picture. And I had to draw my theoretical framework dozens upon dozens of times. And he would just poke holes in the picture. I am not an artist by any stretch of the imagination. But as soon as you couldn't poke holes in my picture, he's like, okay, now you've got it. Now let's start your actual research. So he gave me that opportunity to create agency and I was not comfortable with it. I was so used to the model of do what the prof tells you, do what the teacher sells you. And the, the concept I, of agency, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I, I was just gonna say, I am such a fan of the one pager. Like, wow. <laughs> like just distill all of your random, you know, monkey jungle, whatever thinking, you're just the, 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 the chirping and the, you know, things that are going on in your background, cut through the noise in your own thinking and distill it into uh, 500 words, give or take on a, on a single piece of uh, letter size paper, just nothing better when uh, that got, pulled out uh, by our lecture, by our uh, profs during the doctorate. Uh, that was something that just landed with me as a, as a practical strategy. Like, yeah, I, I gotta, gotta hold on to that. So just, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of the one pager, but that's, that's really yeah. all I wanted to say. There. The, um, the, the brain thing you just mentioned, I, I'm a meditation instructor and I was taught by a 99 year old Buddhist monk. And he called it the monkey mind. He's like, calm the monkey mind. <laughs> Get it? And he was Thai and stuff. So English was his sixth or seventh language or something. But it was just the monkey mind. And it, I knew exactly what he meant. He, he translated in a way that was perfect for me to get to where I was at. There, there's one thing about um, student agency that I want to just give people a little bit of a background on. Student agency way back in the day, like back in the 60s, was about politics. It was about student activism. And that agents, that definition was like Altback goes back from like 1966 and Altback was still publishing in 2014. So that's 40, 50 years of 
of these conversations about what student activism, student agency were, is, and it goes back to Paulo Freire and Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It's what structures are in place that people are having to deal with. And if we're in a structure, we don't even know. It's like, well, of course you can do whatever. I walked into a building today and it's one of those cinder block buildings that was made in the 70s. I can't get cell reception on my phone and somebody else could, another per colleague could. And I was like, how did you do that? I am so jealous. I always have to walk outside and it was, it was minus eight. And then the windshield made it feel like minus 20, but I had to go outside to make a phone call. And he's like, oh, I use cellular Wi-Fi. Oh my, I have no clue what cellular Wi-Fi is, but he had a work phone and I just have my personal phone. So I couldn't get that to work with the IT structures and everything, but I didn't even know that was an option. I didn't know that technology was possible at the institution that I'm at. So we're biased because we haven't dug into the student part and what they actually know. If they don't know it's an option, how would they even do it? Well, and I, I think um, that may sort of uh, speak to, first of all, uh, thanks a lot for bringing in the uh, Paolo Friere. Uh, we've actually, <laughs> if you have an interest in it, um, we, we actually do go back to Friere on uh, a few of our episodes, uh, not as many recently, but uh, anyway, we, uh, we, we definitely uh, talk about the notion of learning as a political act. It's an act of agency and it's an act of self-determination. And uh, Briere, um, for those who haven't heard, um, started out as a, as a literacy educator in Brazil, uh, rural Brazil, um, during some very heavy uh, political times, and I am not going to even try and speak to the political aspects and historical aspects because my knowledge is is very incomplete. But uh, from a very, um, I guess, politically fractious and uh, perhaps undemocratic uh, setting in some instances, where uh, Pierre first sort of began his practice as, uh, as, a, as an educator and writer and a philosopher, um, it's really come a long way towards, in our, in our Western vantage point, of providing a notion of a critical pedagogy. So critical pedagogy as in looking at not just what these conceptual frameworks can do, not just what these learning theories and technology applications can, can sort of do for you, but who is privileged by their use, whose power is expanded, whose is diminished. And um, I think there's going to be more of a discussion to be had um, in a couple months when uh, myself and another colleague are, are going to talk about um, uh, equality or equity, diversity, and uh, inclusion, EDI in education. But uh, suffice it to say, that this uh, thought, this notion by Friere and uh, his, his subsequent uh, many, many followers have, uh, has, I think, really resonated for, for both Doug and for I. And uh, I think if you, you, you uh, students in this course, you probably won't have to go too far uh, down the hall, so to speak, in the education department to find uh, faculty members who uh, would uh, you know, be happy to speak with you more about free air and uh, a lot more informed and uh, eloquently than, than we're capable of. But this is the point. If you don't know about free air at all, then even you know, an, an imperfect understanding, an imperfect understanding is preferable to lack of awareness, I guess, is, is kind of what I'm, I'm getting at there. Um, well, what do you think about all that, bud? Yeah, I think that leads to the Kalmanic 2015 article about what is student agency article that I've included in the notes because, awesome. uh, they, they talk about the quality of students, self-reflective and intentional action and interaction with their environment. And for me, with, with the cell phone example I just gave. I was frustrated 
if you're frustrated with part of the technological component of things, you're not learning as much. You're not having a good quality interaction. You're just trying to get it done. If you have a discussion board post where it's like, okay, I read the article. Okay, I posted my thing. Oh, yeah, I commented on two other people's. And then the prof probably has a rule I can't say. You can't have something where it's one line like, yep, me too. Yep, I agree. Yep, good for you. <laughs> they want more depth of thought than that. But taking a look at what the biases are and how else can you do it. And part of the way that I've been doing it with this podcast and the way I do it when I do my teaching is I include a lot of diagrams. I include memes and pictures and stuff I've collected. And I try to rephrase things in different ways. And I am not as big a fan of the English language as Matt is. My sentences are all short. I like short to the point sentences and Matt's a writer at heart. I, I, is it fair for me to say that you love the written word and, or even the, 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 the spoken word? Well, like I'm, 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 I'm like a, uh, I, I, I was a, I was a poet in my teenage years, like a, a published poet, you know, hosting poetry readings downtown, Fredericton, New Brunswick and whatnot, took an English major as my undergrad, uh, my my teachable subject in the province of New Brunswick as a publicly certified teacher is high school level English and social studies. Um, and uh, part of the uh, passion that I have for the, uh, the, the podcast is I really enjoy writing my part of uh, the notes and incorporating what Doug has brought in and from the Google Doc and putting those into WordPress. Um, a reformed English teacher is how I put it, but uh, I know that for Doug, again, uh, a visual more of a visual than a what verbal or textual learner, perhaps. So we always have one of the things that I enjoy when we're uh, putting together the podcast and. Now that we're kind of uh, running down into the final five or, or whatever minutes of this uh, video, um, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, Doug will perhaps uh, guide us through some of these uh, visuals that he's prepared that uh, will you'll, you'll be able to see in the notes when you uh, are, are, are reading along with this video. One last thing I do, I'm going to look at the very last article that Carrillo et al where they talk about digital revolution. Yeah, no worries. It's in the last 50 years, changes have been seen across society, culture, entertainment, social interactions. But the educational model from 50 years ago looks pretty darn similar to the educational model now. And the technology could be making more changes, but it hasn't happened yet to the same extent as it's happened across the rest of society. And all of these articles, if you go to Google Scholar and look them up, they're all free to download if you log into to your uh, university library. They're all there. So you can take a look at whatever it is you want to take a look at. Okay, now awesome. for the last two minutes or so, uh, I, I can't help myself. I have to throw pictures in. And like one of these pictures is life isn't fair. Well, maybe we should try to make it more fair. Because normally it's life's not fair and it's too bad. Suck it up be a man, whatever. It's like, well, let's try to make it more fair. And that's a lot Legit. of fun. Oh, the and uh, wow, there's a really, um, <laughs> I don't know if you want to speak to this iceberg one, pal. Um, I mean, yes, it's, this is part of making the student the center. This is part of giving them agency and having the infrastructure, because your personal education infrastructure is different than your students. So if you have indigenous students, we can see the material culture, but all of these other pieces, the government systems, the land ethics, the relationships, the oral traditions, the individual stories, the worldview, that's all different. And it's not easily seen. That takes an effort on my part as an educator to learn this stuff. And I'm shocked by how much I have learned about Indigenous culture in the last five to ten years. Because I was a, 
I have a PhD for goodness sake, right? I studied on purpose. I learned a bunch of stuff. I'm a lifelong learner, but this was hidden. And it's taken a lot for me to get there. And I'm so glad it did because I'm, I cringe at what I used to think and what I used to know, but I see that as growth. It's like, okay, I didn't know. Now I do. What am I going to do about it? And so now I've made changes. I, I did my PhD in Australia. And if you take a look at the dreaming, that's what the indigenous of Australia, that's their worldview, their big picture. And they have all of these things tied in together. And this is all part of the dreaming. And if you don't know what that is, you are going to struggle to teach indigenous students or students that are in the outback in Australia, for example. But it's just another way to look at it. And we can throw technology in there to help with the communication components. But all of these other bits are part of what the students have that are in the center. Uh, that is I have another, awesome. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Seriously. The one I really like is we talk about design influences behavior is the little car one. Yep. Where they put a speed limit of 25 on the road and said, yep, that's going to make the racetrack safer. Nobody's going to be allowed to go more than 25. And it's like your design of your teaching influences how the students interact with it and how the students interact with you. So just slapping up the sign saying, yep, bullying's not allowed, but you're allowed to so-and-so just punched me and nothing got done. Yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> you you got to figure that out. And the last one is just cynical because I can't help it. It's it's a picture of that old uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Deviation from the norm will be punished unless it's exploitable because nobody liked Rudolph until they needed his nose or her nose. It, it's that sort of thing. We, we try to cram everybody in to have the same life experience and the same lesson and come out the same way. And I just had to put it there because it just feels true. Fantastic. Anyway, there's some other ones there to go take a look at just to get a feel for how some of your students are doing and where we need to head. And uh, I guess, again, just in terms of um, artifacts to sort of uh, trigger or extend learning, this is something where, uh, you know, these these memes, these sort of uh, ironic or funny images or whatnot, it's uh, we, we, we make a point of including them uh, to sort of, you know, we, we want to break up the format so that uh, there's more potential for learning. So it's not just sort of static block of textually dense academic or professional writing uh, upon static block. And uh, I mean, you really, there's, there's the, the educational enterprise is so uh, wide and deep and potentially rich and rewarding that um, I guess to sort of summarize my uh, last thoughts on this is that wherever you are in your career, uh, there's always something you can be doing, something that's rooted in your own experience, something that uh, can be taken from the environment around you, the local environment, something that's unique, that if you sort of can see it and bring out that creativity in yourself vis-a-vis -vis these types of uh, uh infrastructure or uh, learning interventions or whatnot, if you can, then that in turn will provide uh, agency for your students to uh, explore and express themselves using the materials and skills and knowledge that they have in their domains. So I think uh, really that's uh, as uh, close to uh, an insight as, as I've uh, had during this conversation and I guess I just would like to say for my part that I really appreciate um, Pam for inviting me uh, and us uh, to uh, speak to the class and to anybody else that may be watching or checking this out. Uh, I would just like to say thanks a lot for spending some time with us and please feel free to uh, reach out and engage through um, email, social media, or uh, in any other way. 
Uh, Doug, was there anything else you wanted to add here as uh, some final thoughts? My final thoughts were thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate that. And I know we're over an hour and we promised it to be an hour and I don't want anybody to hate me because if I was a student, I was stopping at an hour. <laughs> so well, that, we, that's uh, all I've we, got. Thanks. We, we may have some Camtasia tricks for that, but uh, we're well taken. <laughs> uh, we appreciate uh, all of you a lot. Uh, take care, everybody. And uh, there's uh, some some notes that you can follow along with with some uh, additional resources if you so choose. Take care. Thanks a lot for having us. And bye for now. Bye bye.